This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, July 3rd. I'm Virginia Allen. We are continuing our Independence Day series today. If you didn't catch the show on Friday, go back and listen to my conversation with Dr. Bill McClay of Hillsdale College. He breaks down the events that led up to the start of the Revolutionary War, including the critical moment of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But today, we are going even further, and we're talking about some of the critical events that happened during the Revolutionary War itself. Professor of History and Dean of Social Science at Hillsdale College, Dr. Paul Marino, joins me to explain why George Washington was such a clear choice to lead the Continental Army and how the colonists actually succeeded in taking on such a powerful military as that of Britain's. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. Feeling overwhelmed by the crisis at our southern border? Then get up to speed with a new season of Heritage Explains. Our first episode with Heritage Border expert Laura Rees is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. We are joined today by the Professor of History and Dean of Social Sciences at Hillsdale College, Dr. Paul Marino. Dr. Marino, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Glad well, to be here. We had we had a, such a good conversation on the show on Friday with your colleague, uh, Dr. Bill McClay, discussing the buildup to the Revolutionary War and, of course, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So today, I'm very excited that we get to dive deeper into the revolution itself and some of the major events that happened. So I, I wanted to start with a question that was raised by something that uh, Dr. McClay said in our last conversation. He mentioned that some were opposed to the Revolutionary War among the colonists because they didn't think that the colonists could actually defeat a military power as strong as Britain. Did the majority of the colonists really believe that the war could be won when they entered it? Well, uh, yeah, John Adams's estimate was that probably a third of the Americans were opposed. You know, they were, they were Tories. Uh, a third were patriots and a third were on the fence. And I would imagine that a lot of those people who were on the fence, one of the things that put them there was, was doubts about the uh, military capability. And uh, I think just about any historian looking backwards would say, yeah, the odds were certainly very overwhelmingly hmm. against the colonists. The British had the best military establishment in the world. Uh, the colonists certainly had some advantages, you know, internal, uh, you know, sort of fighting on their own turf uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, it was definitely long odds. And given the theory that the American Revolution was based upon, uh, take Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, we're exercising the right to revolution. And one of the uh, requirements when you exercise that right is you have to have a reasonable chance of, of winning. If, if you're doomed, you really don't have, it would be an unjustified exercise of the right to revolution. So I think most of the founders uh, said, you know, we know that we're risking our lives and fortunes and, and honor, uh, but most of them thought that it was a, a risk that was worth taking, that was justified because their, their cause uh, was right. Uh, the right to revolution, the appeal to arms was sometimes referred to as an appeal to heaven. And the Declaration of Independence also says that they, they believe that, you know, providence, that, that God is, is on their side. 
Well, and their their leader was very quickly selected as fighting really began to pick up in 1975. The Continental Congress, uh, excuse me, in 1775, the Continental Congress commissioned George Washington as the commander in chief of the Continental Army. Why was Washington such an obvious choice to lead the army? Yeah, one of the uh, the subtitles of one of the great biographies of Washington is is the indispensable man, and uh, that's absolutely what he was. That he was a man of such uh, character that he's sort of embodied uh, the virtue that the American people believe their cause and the cause of Republican government uh, depended upon. And uh, Washington turned out to be just you know the the, the perfect general. Uh, on the one hand, he realized that he sort of he sort of cooled. Uh, the enthusiasm of some radical Americans that we could win this war with a, you know, civ- civilian militia, uh, you know, citizen soldiers. Washington realized you have to have a professional army. Uh, and on the other hand, he recognized that to keep the Continental Army in being was his essential task. And so he avoided uh, direct confrontations with the British unless, uh, you know, the, the circumstances were, were favorable. And maintaining the Continental Army was Washington kept his eye on his principal goal and succeeded in that. Mm. Well, let's go ahead and talk about some of those confrontations. Of course, one of the major actions of the war was the Battle of Bunker Hill in Boston. What were the casualties like at that battle? I think I think they might have been the highest casualties of any battle for the British uh, in the entire war. Uh, it was just sort of shocking how, how high the casualties were, and that sort of meant a lot to the British. It gave them an impression that the Americans were, you know, sort of more formidable uh, than a lot of British officers uh, uh, thought they would be. Uh, the British, especially because of the structure of their army, had a kind of um, aristocratic disdain uh, for the Americans. In fact, Washington himself was to some degree the product of this in that he was considered a provincial, uh, you know, the, the, the way into the officer corps in the regular British army was pretty much closed to Americans just because uh, they were Americans. And that kind of disdain for, you know, for provincial, for colonial Americans, which had been going on for a long time. Uh, Americans experienced this in a lot of the wars that they participated with in the British you know, the, the French and Indian War and uh, earlier wars in the 18th century. And that helped to sort of uh, widen the separation between the, uh, the British and the Americans, a kind of British underestimation and uh, condensation uh, towards the Americans. Hmm. What was the difference in the weaponry? What, was it pretty similar, the, the weapons that the colonists were using versus those that the British were using? Well, again, I'm no, I'm not a military historian. I know more <laughs> about the sort of political and strategic aspects sure. of it. Uh, the Americans, you know, to some degree, is, is my understanding is that they, the British were a regular army, and the Americans tried to have a regular army as well, but they were also willing to use sort of irregular uh, uh, methods, uh, some of which through their experience with uh, you know, Indian fighting in the 18th century. Uh, the American rifleman was something of a, a legend that came out of the, uh, the, of the Revolutionary War. And um, I think the, the initial enthusiasm that the Americans had uh, for the war, it was dampened as the war became protracted, mm. and as the war moved, you know, from New England southward. Uh, by the time you get toward the end of the war, uh, it was more or less a civil war within the United States uh, in the southern part of the uh, southern part of the war. Washington's ability to keep Americans together as the British tried, you know, to divide them, uh, both sort of physically, geographically, you know, occupying New York and trying to cut off. Uh, New England, they thought that there'd be more uh, Tory, uh, more loyalist sentiment in the South, and they tried to exploit that. So there were a lot of internal uh, divisions uh, within the United States that keeping 
uh, regular and you know sort of irregular forces uh, in existence were part of Washington's whole you know sort of strategic uh, uh, gift. Hmm, that's incredible. I mean, how, how did Washington navigate that to continually be having to remind all of the colonists that this is, you know, this isn't just a fight for those in the North or one specific yep. group who wants it. This is a fight for all of us. Yes. I mean, that's one of the most important uh, results of the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, was that that continental experience. Uh, Washington was, say, sort of a nationalist uh, from the outset, and a lot of other Americans were made nationalists by the war experience. Uh, war generally tends to do this. It tends to centralize and, and bring people out of their sort of provincial uh, experience and make them more uh, sort of homogenous. Uh, this happened as recently as World War II. Uh, my father's generation is a World War II veteran, and the Army experience of that war made Americans more, you know, more, more integrated. Uh, in fact, the civil rights movement and the movement towards racial equality was, was given a big boost by the, the World War II uh, experience. So Washington, and he would go on, and his people, uh, the, the Federalist Party, and I think John Marshall, who worked with Washington, was uh, served under him, uh, would continue that sort of nationalist, federalist tradition uh, well into the 1830s. And I would say even more than that, Washington's genius and the genius of the founders was not only to move this from a sort of provincial, you know, state to a, a national level, but also to frame the struggle in international or sort of global uh, mm. terms, that this war was about redeeming the right of self-government and the natural rights of, of men for the entire world. And I think Lincoln, during the Civil War, uh, was able to sort of channel Washington and the, the revolutionary generation's belief that this was, this was about, you know, mankind. This was about the last best hope of, of man on earth to prove that we can govern ourselves. Hmm. Well, and I mean, during the war, obviously, I think, you know, as you've alluded to, there were so many highs and lows, and Washington was constantly trying to, to navigate that and look for opportunities where morale could be boosted. And one of those situations was, of course, when George Washington crossed the Delaware in December of 1776. Why was that such a critical move? Well, they'd been on the run for such a long time. You know, from New England, when the English-British changed the center of the, uh, the war to New York, and Washington lost several battles in New York and had to give up Philadelphia. And so sort of a, a symbolic victory like that uh, was especially with regard to the, uh, you know, the Hessians, uh, the British mercenaries. And uh, I mean, the, the American Revolution, the War for Independence had some, you know, pretty dark uh, elements to it. And the complaints in the Declaration of Independence, even before independence was declared, about some of the atrocities uh, that the British military uh, had committed. And it refers to, you know, large uh, bands of foreign mercenaries uh, that the king had sent over. So the, the war for independence, even though it was between, you know, sort of people who previously thought of themselves as Englishmen in, in common, uh, could become pretty, pretty bitter. And I think that, yes, as you put it, the morale building of a victory like that of, uh, of the Delaware was, was important. Hmm. Now, we, we hear about the struggle in the winters during the war. Uh, how, how did Washington navigate that, the struggle of not having the right supplies uh, and having to navigate very cold temperatures in the midst of this bitter war. Yeah. Part of it was, you know, his, his, his attempt to build up the uh, Continental Army as an organization uh, and bringing over you know, European professionals like uh, Baron Steuben, 
Uh, and also Washington by his personal example, uh, the fact that he was sharing the, you know, the, the privations of his, of his soldiers, that he was giving up and risking a lot uh, in this effort. And that continued until the very end of the war. Uh, one of the most famous stories about Washington was his uh, putting down of the Newburgh conspiracy, where, again, all these grievances of soldiers who hadn't been paid and uh, the, the government under the Articles of Confederation had neglected the army so much. And there was a movement where they were going to essentially overthrow uh, the Continental Congress and uh, have a, a military coup. And Washington uh, appealed to them by the experience of his own sacrifices, all that he had given up uh, for the cause. And he sort of shamed them into giving up the, uh, of the conspiracy. So Washington was a very, uh, some, some historians have said, you know, he was, he was also something of an actor. You know, he recognized so much the sort of importance of public relations or, or optics uh, as we would call it today, hmm. uh, literally in this case, because what he he had to pull out his spectacles to read the speech that he was going to make, and he apologized because he said that he had grown you know old and now nearly blind in the service of his country, and that just sort of melted uh, everybody. So wow. he was something of a thespian as well. Hmm, that's so fascinating. <laughs> now, when the French uh, entered the war, when when France entered in 1778, how did that shift the dynamic for that, the colonists? That, that is the game changer. Uh, I mean, you could say if you believe that, you know, God, providence is on your side, then, you know, nothing else matters. Uh, but most people would say it was French intervention that was absolutely crucial. And really, that's a, a large part of the reason for the Declaration of Independence. It, it is a statement of, you know, sort of general principles and sort of the natural rights political philosophy of the American founders. But it was also an appeal for uh, foreign assistance to let the French especially know that we're not just fighting here for a, a better deal within the British Empire. You know, we're playing for keeps now. We're going to break up the British Empire. And this was, this was in France's interest. Uh, France wanted uh, a revenge from their humiliation in the, the previous uh, Seven Years' War. And so getting France on board was essential to the, um, uh, to the American victory. Uh, that, that was, you know, a very similar process works itself out in the, um, uh, the American Civil War. Uh, one of the most underappreciated aspects of the Civil War was Lincoln's ability in keeping European powers out of the war, uh, keeping the British and the French from recognizing the, the Confederacy. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so that the, the diplomacy of both of those wars was, was, was uh, you know, essential. Yeah, so critical. Now, the war was essentially over in 1781 when the British surrendered at Yorktown. Why did the British surrender? Well, this is in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War by which they had acquired this uh, huge North American empire. Uh, so there's some degree of, you know, exhaustion. And the same thing would happen after the uh, War of 1812. Um, I think it's also, and the other question is, why did they agree to the terms when they did? And why did they agree mm. to such generous terms, uh, the territorial terms especially? And I think part of it was a lot of British uh, thought, you know, this is impermanent. This is not going to be long-lasting. Uh, the Americans won't be able to pull off this, you know, Republican self-government uh, experiment. Sooner or later, they'll fall out among themselves, and the American Union will break up, and we'll be there to pick up the pieces. I think the French and the Spanish probably uh, thought the same thing, mm. uh, that the Americans were not capable of establishing themselves as a sovereign power among sovereign powers. So the British might have looked upon it just as sort of a, a, an armistice, a temporary peace, before they got uh, involved again. And it looked that way. One of the principal reasons, the principal reason, for the Constitution was fear among the Federalists that the Union would, would come apart and it would break up into you know, a couple of uh, confederacies that would then be prey to European uh, reestablishment of European imperialism. 
uh, and as late as the War of 1812, you know, the survival of the United States was, you know, was, was an open question. So the war ends, but the future is very much still hanging in the balance. Yeah, and uh, the once the war was over, in fact, you could see this during the war itself, as the war moved from New England to the Middle States to to the South. When the British threat was away, the Americans became uh, less united. You know, mm-hmm. war again has this tendency of necessity of bringing people together, uh, making them willing to make sacrifices that they wouldn't make in peacetime. So you see this uh, kind of the unity of the American people uh, slackens uh, after the peace is made. Uh, the kind of government that they established under the Articles of Confederation was very decentralized. You know, the states returned to a kind of jealousy of their individual powers of the kind that they're willing to give up during the Revolutionary War. And that's what brought about the, uh, the crisis that led to the Constitutional Convention, a need for a more perfect union because the union had, uh, had weakened when the, when the British threat was removed. <laughs> Dr. Paul Marino of Hillsdale College. Dr. Marino, thank you so much for your insight and for your time today. We really appreciate it and have a wonderful July 4th. Well, thank you. Happy Independence Day to you and all my fellow citizens. Well, thank you again for joining us today. We hope that you all will join us for our final installment tomorrow of our Independence Day series. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. We're going to dive further into the Constitution tomorrow on July 4th itself. But thanks again for joining us for this conversation on the Revolutionary War. In light of the July 4th holiday, we do not have a top news show this afternoon, but we will be back with you all on Wednesday for top news. But in the meantime, if you've never had the chance to leave us a rating or review at The Daily Signal, we would love to hear your feedback. We're across all podcast platforms, and we love seeing those five-star ratings and reviews from you all. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow morning on July 4th for the final edition of our Independence Day series. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.